You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. We do have our uh, sermon notes available this morning through our Google Drive that you can access through the bulletin, so if you'd like to do so, we do have that stored for you. Uh, so that you can follow along there. We finished up chapter 6 last week, uh, looking at the sixth seal, uh, specifically uh, the return of Jesus. Uh, We said from a summary sentence standpoint that on a future historical day, the patience of God will expire and the wrath of the Lamb will be properly revealed and poured out against the unbelieving world that this is an answer to the martyr's plea for God to bring justice upon what has taken place towards them. We talked about the lamb returning in a dramatic fashion. Uh, We talked about Jesus initiating this judgment, uh, that it comes with cosmic signs, and that it results in sinful mankind fleeing from him. We said that the judgment will be impartial, that it will be comprehensive, that he will not show partiality in his judgment, just like he doesn't show partiality in his salvation. Um, that salvation is extended to all that will believe and repent. doesn't matter what nationality you are. doesn't matter what good works you have accomplished. That salvation is available to all, and judgment will come upon all um, as well. We also saw that the Lamb's wrath will be horrific, um, so much so that death will be a preferred option versus facing him, as we see the individuals at the end of chapter 6 fleeing and crying out for relief. Uh, no one will be able to hide from that judgment. Um, But we said that God makes a way for people to stand. The question that we're left with at the end of chapter 6 is, who can stand um, in light of this judgment? And uh, we saw from some passages of Scripture that God has made a way for us to stand before His judgment, that we can take comfort in the fact that though creation will be shaken during this time, that we can escape that shaking, um, that Christ remains with us and that His love remains upon us. And so from an application standpoint last week, we challenged us to, to not hide in our sin like the sinners will hide in their sin that day, that as believers we should work towards fighting sin, exposing sin, confessing sin, and that ultimately we're uh, to pursue things that are eternal. Um, I left you with the question, are we guilty of pursuing human institutions that will ultimately fall and worshiping things that will ultimately be destroyed? Um, we avoid those things by keeping an eternal perspective. Which brings us now to Revelation chapter 7. And so I want to read for you our text this morning, uh, beginning in verse 1. We'll take the time to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to cover 1 through 8 today. But I do want you to see verses 1 through 8 in their full context. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been, uh, who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 
12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're specifically focusing on verses 1 through 8 this morning, looking at the 144,000 that are sealed. Our summary sentence for today, before God brings his judgment upon the earth, he intentionally seals all those that belong to him, ensuring that they will persevere in their faith in order to be spared from his coming wrath. Before God brings his judgment upon the earth, he intentionally seals all those that belong to him, ensuring that they will persevere in their faith in order to be spared from his coming wrath. For our kids, Jesus will protect all Christians when he comes back to bring judgment. What we're going to see from this text as we look at some surrounding texts as well is that essentially before God brings judgment, and he tells these angels to withhold judgment until the appropriate time, but before he brings judgment, he ensures that his people are protected from that judgment. He seals them. The idea being that they are sealed in such a way that their faith endures to the very end. So we've seen a lot about perseverance in the book of Revelation. We've seen the churches called to persevere in the book of Revelation, to not apostatize, to not wander, to not give in to idolatry, to sexual immorality, to persevere, to endure, to conquer. And what we find here in chapter 7 is that God does the work necessary to ensure that that happens. Right? That he begins a good work and he finishes the good work that he starts in the life of believers. So before God brings this final judgment upon the earth, he intentionally seals all those that belong to him. And that sealing ensures that they will persevere in their faith so they're spared from his coming wrath. Some introductory notes just to help us understand what's happening here in Revelation chapter 7. First of all, chapter 7 is going to answer that question in context, who is able to stand from chapter 6. So as Jesus is returning, verse 16, the unbelievers are calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And it's as though the vision stops, and, and John gets this new vision. After this, I saw Um, And there's this interlude that takes place, and basically there's a response that comes in the form of a vision to John. This is who will stand. In light of the Lamb's judgment, in light of the Lamb's wrath coming, this is who will be able to stand. Chapter 7 serves as an interlude to help us see what is the fate of the people of God during this time. So again, 
We're reading in Revelation chapter 6 all this stuff about famine and war and death and, and people being killed for their faith. And it's as though, what's happening to the people of God here? I mean, are they just kind of limping along? Are they just kind of hoping to make it to the end? And so there's this interlude that takes place. We take a break from the seals for a bit here for this chapter, and we kind of get this, uh, this overview of what's happening with God's people during this time. The idea here is that they are thriving. They're not just surviving, they're thriving at this time. Let us, let us don't think that, that, that all these promises about suffering and potential death and that the martyr's number has to be filled up before Jesus comes back is meant to give us this picture that as Christians, we're going to have to limp along in our faith until Jesus comes back and then things are good for us, Right? Um, it's not this idea that we try to survive until Jesus comes back. The idea is that we should be thriving in the midst of this suffering. Um, I recently wrote um, a parent document for our parents regarding how to make it through middle school, basically. But we titled it a, a thrival guide instead of a survival guide. See what I did there? Thrival guide, right? Because way too many parents come into my office and talk about how do we survive the middle school years as though we'd like to just jump ahead and skip these three years. We'd like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade to just be done with, and we want to go ahead and get to high school when things kind of calm down. Why would we want to like fast forward three years of a kid's life? Why do we want to approach it as though we have to just kind of get through it and get to the end of it, and then we can enjoy things when we can really approach the three years of middle school as a time for them to thrive and learn and grow and flourish. And I think that's the desire that we have uh, seen here is that believers are thriving during this time, that, that yes, there's death, yes, there's suffering, but the church isn't being defeated. The church isn't limping along. The church is growing and thriving to the point that we can't even count the people that are in heaven from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are worshiping. Right, so, so while there's beasts and antichrist and, and false prophets and false teachings that are circulating and, and the church is being killed for their faith, the church is growing radically during this time. It's not surviving, it's not limping, it's thriving during the end times. Um, and so I want us to see that, and I think chapter 7 helps us to understand that in light of the famine and the suffering that we see in chapter 6 with the seal judgments, the church is thriving during this time. Chapter 7 most likely takes place prior to chapter 6 from a chronological standpoint. Um, it's, it's hard to understand Revelation and when some certain things happen, especially when visions are stopping and starting. And so John sees things, and then after he sees certain things, he sees other things. And there's no reason to presume that he has to see them in the order that they happen. Most commentators see this as an interlude that basically rewinds and says, okay, Actually, before the seal judgments are, are unfolding in this manner, God sealed his people to protect them. Maybe not physically, but spiritually, they are being protected during this time. So think in terms of chapter 7 not necessarily happening, happening in chronological order with chapter 6, that it may actually give us a picture of what took place prior to chapter 6. One reason, reason we would think that is because in Zechariah, Chapter 6. This was a passage we referenced a couple of weeks ago um, when we were talking about the four horsemen. Remember we saw horsemen listed in Zechariah chapter 6 as a, as a means of judgment. It says in chapter 6 verse 1, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. 
Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. All right, so these, these horses are going to ride out and they are attached to the idea of the four winds, okay? And so you got horses, chariots, and winds kind of being combined together in this passage in Zechariah chapter 6. In Revelation, we're saying that Zechariah 6 is kind of a background to understanding the four horsemen. Well, in Revelation chapter 7, you have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. So again, from a chronological standpoint, it's probably best to understand this as before the horsemen are riding out, God is doing this sealing process, okay? So if we're thinking in terms of that background standing, um, Ephesians 1.13 probably helps us understand this as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a time frame reference for us here in Ephesians. When are we sealed? We're sealed when we hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and we believe in him. That's when we are sealed right? And 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that Jesus delays his judgment. Why? Because he wants no one to perish, but all to come to repentance so that all can be sealed with the Holy Spirit, okay? So it's probably best to understand, again, judgments aren't flowing until that sealing process is taking place. The goal of the chapter, and again, that's always important when we look at Revelation and we walk away knowing there's going to be some things that we just won't understand, big picture stuff. The goal of the chapter It's to give the reader assurance regarding the eternal protection of the people of God. The goal of this chapter, which goes along with our summary sentence, is to reassure us as the reader that we are eternally protected as the people of God. And God works to make sure that that is the case. All right, let's get into the text here uh, with our first point this morning. God intentionally withholds his judgment. God intentionally withholds his judgment. For our kids, God is waiting to bring his judgment. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Judgment uh, is being withheld by God intentionally. Specifically, judgment upon the entire world is withheld until the appropriate time. We see four angels. We see the four corners of the earth being mentioned here. And what that reveals to us is that God's sovereignty extends to all corners of the globe. God's sovereignty extends to all corners of the of the globe and God's judgment is being withheld until the appropriate time. We see the idea of winds being attached to judgment in Jeremiah. Again, I told you at the beginning of uh, beginning of Revelation that there was going to be a lot of Old Testament discussion to help us understand some of the pictures being given. Jeremiah 49 gives us some help in verse 36 of seeing these winds as being a tool of judgment that God uses. Jeremiah 49 Verse 36, we'll start in verse 34. 
The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, declares the Lord, I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. So God's bringing judgment upon this this nation of Elam, and he describes it in terms of bringing four winds from the four quarters of heaven in verse 36. So God's judgment is attached to this idea of his sovereignty and the corners of the globe. But what's comforting to us is that not only does God bring judgment from the four corners of the earth, is that he also extends salvation to the four corners of the earth, right? We see in um, Matthew 24, 31. Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so God's judgment comes from the four corners of the earth with the four winds. God's salvation comes from the exact same area, which is important. We need salvation to extend that far because deception extends that far. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, we find that Satan's army will come from the four corners of the earth as well. It says, um, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. In Revelation chapter 20, they will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So we can real quickly see that what we're talking about is the entire globe, the entire existence of mankind, that God's judgment, his sovereignty extends to all four corners of the earth that salvation extends to all four corners of the earth because sin and deception extends to all four corners of the earth. And so it would necessitate judgment coming upon sin if sin is extended everywhere. But by God's grace, salvation also extends there as well. Okay, so these angels are withholding this judgment that should be coming upon the earth, all four corners of it, and it's being withheld intentionally for a specific purpose. And number two, Judgment will not come until every believer is sealed. It's intentionally being withheld, and it's intentionally being withheld for a specific reason. The sealing of believers. We find this out from this angel who rises from the east, announcing this plan that before the four angels can release these demonic forces or demonic judgment or or whatever this looks like, before this can be released, believers need to be sealed. And therefore, it won't happen until that takes place. The angel probably rising from the east pictures that the idea of the sun coming up in the east, right? And a source of light and blessing and hope. There's an intentional group of people that God intends to save. He suspends judgment until that has happened. That's important for us to note here. God's not going to bring judgment. He's not going to bring the end. He's not going to bring these forces from the four corners of the earth until every believer is sealed. He has an intentional group of people he is saving, and he will save that group of people. And he will not bring judgment until that takes place. I think the main point that we walk away from this section 
realizing that the angels may be symbolic, the, the, the winds are probably symbolic, exactly what this looks like, are, are being pictured as best they can by John through his writings. I think the main point here is that there are good spiritual forces preventing the evil spiritual forces from commencing their destructive activity on earth until believers are given spiritual protection against losing their faith. There are good spiritual forces and the sovereign forces of God that prevent anything evil from happening on this earth, any type of judgment from coming. None of that can commence until believers are given spiritual protection against losing their faith. And that's the idea of the sealing process, right? It's not just that believers have to be saved. There's this idea of us being sealed so that we remain saved, right? So that we do persevere, so that when trials and difficulties um, come upon us, we don't waver in our faith, that we're victorious, that we do persevere, that we do conquer. As you're writing that down, Matthew chapter 24 Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But you know what? It's not possible, right? Their deception is going to be so good. Their false teaching is going to be so good that it ought to be able to lead the elect even astray. It ought to be able to lead the best Christian astray. The deception is going to be so, uh, so good, but it's not possible. Right? Jesus says, if it were possible, it would lead them astray, but it's not possible. Why? Because believers have been sealed. Believers persevere. God starts a work. God finishes a work. All right? So there's good spiritual forces preventing the evil spiritual forces from commencing their destructive activity on earth until believers are given spiritual protection against losing their faith. So God intentionally withholds his judgment. But number two, God intentionally protects his people as well. He intentionally withholds judgment and he, he intentionally protects his people. For our kids, God is protecting his people in order to keep them saved. God intentionally protects his people. So we learn from this angel that arises from the east that these four winds will not be allowed to blow until the sealing of God's servants takes place. Hopefully that kind of leaves us with that question of what does it mean to be sealed by God? What does that actually mean? I think ultimately it means that we get to stand when judgment comes. The answer to that question in chapter 6. But from a contextual standpoint, the idea of sealing at that time, and I heard several of our discussion groups talking about the context and biblical sense of what it means to seal. I heard the, the idea of the king's signet ring and the sealing that he would apply to a law or to a letter that, that carried weight and authority to it. Um, the idea of sealing has also the context of identity for a person, uh, ownership, security. Um, at that time, the common practice was to mark a slave on the forehead to identify ownership. And what we find in the book of Revelation is a lot of forehead talk, right? There's a lot of markings of the forehead. And we find here that the sealing for these believers is going to take place on their forehead, which is appropriate because they're identified as servants of God. And really that word for servant, you're probably familiar with the idea that it's actually the word slave. So we're talking about slaves of God in the context at that time being identified with their owner and being sealed by their heavenly father on the forehead. 
That would have absolutely made sense to the churches that were reading this because the slave concept, you would have seen people marked on their foreheads and you would have known who they belonged to, which is also why we see the mark of the beast being applied to the forehead as well. It's a distinguishing mark that separates believers and unbelievers. Again, it's symbolic, right? Like I don't think we're ever really going to have a time where we're walking around and we have markings on our foreheads. I think it's completely symbolic, okay? I think that the sealing of the believer is to be understood from a spiritual standpoint. And I think, too, the understanding with the uh, mark of the beast would be understood in a, a, a spiritual context as well, all right? But what we find is that the idea, the context at that time for what it would have meant to be sealed, it would have been tied to the idea of ownership, security. Who do you belong to, all right? Um, it could mean protection from physical harm. It could mean protection from demons. It could mean protection from losing one's faith. And we're going to kind of unpack the possibilities um, as we get into this. I think there's some possible background that we can see as well. First of all, from the idea of the Passover. All right, Think about the Passover. When God's judgment is coming due to the Passover, right? back in Egypt, the final plague, God's going to bring judgment upon, um, upon the, the nation of Egypt. Right? And so he's going to try to bring judgment upon them and their firstborn son's going to die. What do the believers, what do the Israelites have to do to be spared from that? They have to mark their doors, right? They have to put a seal of protection upon their door. They have to mark it with the blood of the lamb. That blood's meant to protect them. Right? So we have the idea of the sealing there, protection from God's uh, judgment. But then if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 9. I think this gives great background knowledge for how we can understand the sealing protection of God. Ezekiel chapter 9. And we'll go to verse 1. This is in the context of judgment coming upon uh, Jerusalem for their idolatry. It says, then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So you have these guys that are prepared for battle with weapons, and this guy that has like writing utensils and markings. Verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, you shall show no pity, kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Right? That, that sounds a lot like what we're reading about here in Revelation. Again, my hope is that showing you some of the background information in the Old Testament helps us to see that what's taking place in Revelation, the wordage that's being used, the pictures that are being given to John are consistent with how God has always functioned. 
When he brings judgment, he brings it in this type of context. He brings it in these type of pictures. So he's just drawing upon previous pictures that he's used with God's people all along. Okay, And so there's this idea that God's going to bring judgment on the city of Jerusalem, but there are people who are grieved over the sin. Like These are people that are different from those that are engaged in the idolatry. These are the remnant, the remnant who have not sold their souls to this. Okay, And God says, mark them on their foreheads. Don't kill them. Kill everybody else. And this might have been actually a physical marking, right? Similar to when Israel invades uh, Jericho and the cord is hanging out of Rahab's window, right? They're told to kill everybody except for the people that are in that room, a physical marking that spared her and her family from judgment. So think in terms of this background information. If you're someone who's in the New Testament reading Revelation for the first time, you would have been well-versed in the Old Testament, right? And again, we talked, I think, last week, we aren't as well-versed in the Old Testament as we should be because we oftentimes think of it as old and outdated and for Israel only, and maybe doesn't have the same bearing on us as the New Testament does, and so we're not as well-versed in it as we should be. But if we were, I think we would read Revelation, and we would hit this idea in Ezekiel and say, oh, that, that makes total sense to me. Like, I've heard that before, the idea of God sealing his people, marking his people to spare them from his judgment. We see that pretty clearly here in Ezekiel chapter 9, protection against God's judgment. Which, as I was reading this, it kind of made me think in two in terms of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, talking about the great deception that's going to come and how God spares his people from that. God protects his people from the deception that comes. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks a lot about uh, the deception, but think about it in terms of this. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. We talked at that time when we went through First and Second Thessalonians, the idea of God withholding certain things so that his purposes could play out before he let certain things come about. So this, this uh, Antichrist can't even come on the scene. He's being withheld and restrained. Satan can't carry out what he even wants to do until God gives him permission to do it. Again, probably being able to tie this to the idea that the, 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 the great deceiver, the deception that's going to extend to the four corners of the earth, that's not going to be allowed to happen until the sealing takes place, until all believers are sealed and protected from this happening. God's in control, as we've seen all through Revelation. He's in control of when this happens and how it happens. Believers are sealed on their foreheads to show their identity is tied to God. He owns them. And God ensures the salvation of his people. So we see here in Revelation chapter 7, the idea of God sealing his people, sealing them by marking them on their foreheads. If you jump ahead to Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, you see this come up again. And we'll get to it very soon. When the trumpet judgments are happening, it says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And we're going to see that 
when we get into some of these judgments, they parallel very well with a lot of the plagues that came upon Egypt. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So we see the seal of God's protection coming to play here at this time. When this trumpet is being blown and this judgment is coming, it cannot affect God's people. We know from the plagues in Egypt, there were plagues that couldn't affect God's people too, right? That darkness came upon the Egyptians, but not upon the Israelites. They were protected. They were, they were guarded. They were sealed. And that takes place here in Revelation chapter 9. The sealing of God comes up. I do think in terms of the sealing here that it's more about spiritual protection than physical protection. Why? Because the martyrs were told, there's more of you to come, right? Like there's no promise that we should see here that God's people are protected from physical harm from others. In fact, it's promised, but we can find comfort that the sealing protects us spiritually so that deception doesn't set in and also that the trials don't weaken our faith to the point that we abandon the faith. The sealing of the Holy Spirit secures us until the day of redemption. It guarantees our inheritance, that we make it to the end. Unbelievers carry a similar mark, but their, terms, uh, their term is used in the idea of simply marking rather than sealing. There's no promises really attached to them. There's no hope in their marking. But in Revelation chapter 13, we see the opposite of being sealed by God. We see that mark of the beast. In Revelation 13 verse 16, again on the foreheads, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's a number of a man, and his number is 666. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The reason we're not taking the mark of the beast is because our foreheads have already been marked. We've already been sealed, right? We don't have to worry about our spiritual life moving forward. We are guaranteed to make it to the end. The markings, two different people groups being marked two different ways. What does it mean to be sealed by God? It means that the Holy Spirit indwells us, saves us, and keeps us saved. Keeps us saved. And we're going to come back to the, at the very end and talk about, do we participate in that? Or do we just sit back and enjoy the ride? How do we participate in that actual sealing process? All right, number two. Who are the 144,000? Who are the 144,000? Hopefully, as in your discussions this morning, you saw that it's the Jehovah's Witness group that um, is really tied to this passage of Scripture, and they're really identified with their belief system about this. What did you guys find or kind of settle on as far as what did Jehovah's Witness believe about this passage? 
they're the only ones that go to heaven. It's okay. only 44,000. Yep. And there's no guarantee. I mean, you can work hard, but there's no guarantee you're one of them. Right. Yep. That they are the spiritual Israel of God. Okay. Any other thoughts? I've sat and talked with Jehovah's Witnesses about this. Um, I think, and I didn't do a ton of research on it um, to refresh myself, but I'm I'm pretty sure most of them believe that the 144,000 have already been determined prior to 1935, and I can't remember why that year is, is important. But essentially, there is a division of God's people. The 144,000 are those that dwell in heaven. Other believers dwell on an eternal earth, basically. And so the 144,000 are kind of the elitist. They get to be in heaven for eternity. Everybody else is kind of relegated to a life here on earth, which isn't a bad thing. And so when you talk to them about it, like they'll talk to you about the, um, the value of, of, of being here on earth for eternity. Um, but they're really tied to an, uh, an incorrect understanding of this 144,000 and, and what it means. And, and they're really kind of wrapped up in their identity about that passage. Um, what does it mean for us? Um, how should we understand this? How are we seeing this and the approach that we're taking to Revelation? So let's go back to Revelation 7. Don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. All right, a couple things to consider before we talk a little bit about what, what we take from this uh, section. First of all, the same group seems to be mentioned again in Revelation chapter 14. Okay, so this isn't the only time we hear about this 144,000. If you fast forward to Revelation 14, verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, so they show up again there um, in Revelation 14. Probably the same people, okay? Now, I find it interesting that what they have on them, the name, Father's name written on their foreheads, these are things that were promised to people in the churches that we read about in the beginning of Revelation, that if you conquer to the end, you get this, okay? So I'm real hesitant to think in terms of the 144,000 being an elitist group that gets something that the rest of believers don't get because these things that they are identified with are things that were promised to the people in the churches that conquered to the end. And we said that the churches were made up of Israelites and Gentiles. There's nothing distinguishing in the letter that says Israel gets this promise and the Gentiles don't, or Gentiles get this promise and Israel doesn't, right? There's, they're not trying to distinguish between the two groups of people in these churches. He says, if you conquer to the end, you're going to get your name written. My name's going to be written on your forehead, okay? And so the 144,000 here, they're standing here. Who are they? They're the ones that are sealed, who have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They show up again in Revelation 14. The number is either literal or symbolic. That's obvious, right? It's either really 144,000 people that we're talking about, or it, it means something, it symbolizes something. I think in reading it, it seems more symbolic than literal. Um, the number 12 is used in the book of Revelation for a number of completeness. So if you take the number 12, 12 tribes of Israel, if you square it, um, 
12 times 12 is 144, and then you multiply it by what's considered a large number, 1,000, then you get the 144,000. So if it's symbolic, then it means kind of a full completeness. You take a, a number that means perfect or complete, and then you multiply it times a large number. Now, the, the number 1,000 is going to come up again in Revelation 20, and we're going to talk about what the 1,000-year reign is, okay? But I think it's important that we note how the term 1,000 is used in Scripture. It's oftentimes used not literally, but simply to mean a large number, okay? Think about it in these terms. AJ, for whatever reason, thinks like the biggest number out there is 130,000. I don't know where he got that number from, but if you're battling in his room with armies and you talk about bringing in like this ship or this animal, he always trumps it with, well, I have 130,000 soldiers that kill that. It's like, why 130,000? But that's his number for big. Like when he wants to go large, he goes 130,000. You probably think in terms of millions or billions. Growing up, our cousins always over-exaggerated things. And one thing that sticks in my mind, we were camping and some of our cousins had gone down to the dock and apparently there were shrimp down there. They came back to our campsite and said, there are millions of shrimp down at the dock. So in my mind, I'm thinking, probably not millions, but probably a whole lot. And so I drive down there and like, I was really disappointed when I got down there at the amount that they were labeling as millions. But for them, millions was the large number to use. In scripture, thousand is the, is the large number to use when we're talking about a lot. Um, think about it, and I, I, I want to just say that. I want to show you a couple examples. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. Because you need to remember this, because when it comes back and I tell you that a thousand years isn't literal, it's based off of this understanding as well. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Man, I hope God shows his steadfast love to more than thousands, right? Because there's been more than thousands of Christians since the time that he said this. Thousands is just used as a large number here, okay? In Numbers chapter 10, verse 36, Numbers chapter 10, verse 36. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Okay, so that idea of thousand thousands, that's just the large number that's being used there. In Psalm 50, verse 10. We actually sang about one of them this morning. I'm going to read that verse to you that we sang about in its context. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? We'd all agree that God owns more cattle than just the ones on a thousand hills. Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day in your courts is better than a million elsewhere as well, right? A thousand doesn't cap it. It's just used as a large number in Scripture. It's just, this is what I throw out there when I'm talking about a large number. Uh, Psalm 91.7 is the context of the song that we sang this morning. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Talking about the sparing of the righteous. A thousand may fall. A million may fall, and you're still not going to feel it, right? Like, it's just a large number that's being used. So I think we have to be careful in thinking in terms of, 
144,000 literal Jewish people being sealed at this time as though that number is meant to be literal. Because there's a lot of numbers, again, in, in Revelation that aren't, right? That, that number seven, there's not seven spirits of God, there's one Holy Spirit of God, right? Jesus doesn't have a bunch of eyes on his head. He has, he has two eyes, he's got a body, right? But that idea of completeness, that complete vision, okay? So I think the number is more symbolic than literal, I think also we have to decide is Israel, the term, the tribes, are they being presented as being literal or symbolic? It's, it's important to note that you can't discern the tribes today. Since about AD 70, uh, a Jewish person has not been able to identify what tribe he comes from. Um, all the genealogical records are gone, which is why the Antichrist can't really show up and claim to be the Messiah because he can't really trace himself to the correct lines because there's no genealogical records. There's no family trees beyond AD 70. When Jerusalem fell in AD 70 and the sacrifice system was completely wiped away, should have been wiped away when the uh, veil was torn and they had full access to the Holy of Holies and Jesus was the perfect lamb and sacrifices were no longer needed according to Hebrews. AD 70, God just says, you know what? No more sacrifices for real and the temple's torn away. All the genealogical records are lost then, and there were a few tribes that were kind of hanging on at that time, and even those tribes are at this point not able to determine what tribe they come from. So we're talking about discernible tribes here in Revelation. There are no discernible tribes right now for the Jewish people. So to even try to break up people, so if you had 144,000 get saved at a revival, you couldn't say, tribe of Gad over here, I just want to see Revelation picture, tribe of Gad over here, tribe of Benjamin over here. You can't do it because they don't know what tribes they come from, Okay. Also, the tribe list is very different here than any other place in Scripture. It's the only time that Judah is listed first. Usually, Reuben is listed because he's the oldest, but Judah's listed here probably because we're talking about the line of Judah in this context, right? And so Judah, being the tribe that Jesus comes from, takes preeminence here in the listing of the tribes. A couple other unusual things about the tribe listings here. Manasseh is mentioned, but not Ephraim, most likely because Ephraim had enmity towards Judah, um, in their history, and so probably left out of this passage if we're trying to highlight Judah and its preeminence here. Ephraim gets left out. Dan gets left out. We've talked before when we were in Genesis that the, the tribe of Dan gave itself to idolatry probably more than the other tribes, and so he's deleted from this. Joseph gets included probably because Ephraim is excluded. Uh, Levi gets included here. Uh, normally he's left out because he doesn't get a land inheritance, but here it is included because it's not really talking about land um, it's also kind of interesting to note that the concubine kids are listed higher in this list than they ever are listed anywhere else in Scripture, which probably alludes to the inclusion of outsiders into God's kingdom, because these are not descendants of Leah and Rachel. These are concubine kids, kind of the, the outsiders that are actually given more preeminence here than they're given anywhere else in Scripture, which is a nod to the fact that outsiders are included in God's plan, Gentiles being included. So who are these people that are being sealed here? Some options that we have. Um, it's an end-time group of Israelites that are saved during the time of tribulation. That's the futurist approach. That's the left-behind approach. That's the belief that the church is gone. Gentiles are pre predominantly in heaven. Tribulation ensues for seven years with all these judgments. And during that time, 144,000 Israelites get saved. Okay. That's one option. The other main option is that um, this is a representation of the sum of God's people on earth. That basically 
Israel and the church are one, and so this is a picture of the church in the terms of Israel. Uh, David Platt believes that the reason we have them being identified in terms of Israel here and then more as an innumerable amount of nations in the rest of this chapter is because you have Jesus presented as the Lion of Judah and then the Lamb who purchases people from every nation in chapter 5. And so he's saying this is a picture of the Lion of Judah saving the church in the terms of Israel. And then in chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 7, him saving them in the terms of the Lamb who purchases from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So you got two options here. I haven't found anybody, anybody who doesn't hold to a futurist perspective that thinks this is literal Israel. Okay, so futurist perspective, again, is the idea of the left behind, rapture, church and Israel are separate. Separate entities that have separate plans of God attached to them. I haven't found anybody that believes what I've presented to you, that the church in Israel should be understood as one people of God, that think this is a unique amount of Israelites that get included in the end times. I haven't found anybody that holds to that. Okay, so it's either you believe church and Israel are separate, or you believe church and Israel are one. If you believe church and Israel are separate, this is a group of 144,000 people that get saved at the end. If you believe church and Israel are one, it's a picture of the church in terms of Israel. Okay? Here's what I think we can know, because I'm not sure exactly how to understand the 144,000 and who they are. But here's what I do know, and that leads me to believe that this is the church in terms of Israel. Here's why I believe that. First of all, all believers are called his servants and slaves. Okay? All believers are referenced this way. So it says, don't let the winds blow until the servants of God have been sealed on their foreheads. Well, in Revelation 2.20, all believers are referenced this way. Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, is teaching and seducing my servants to my servants to practice sexual immorality. Talking about Jews and Gentiles alike. Revelation chapter 19.5, another incident where all of God's people are referenced this way. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. All believers are called his servants, slaves. We can know that. Secondly, all believers are purchased through Christ's redemption. All believers are purchased through Christ's redemption. Now, I told you that I think the people in 7 are the same people in chapter 14. So that 144,000 shows up again in Revelation 14. Who are these people? It's these that have been redeemed from mankind. And that's true of all believers, right? We've been redeemed from sinful mankind. Who are these 144,000, the, the text asks? These have been redeemed from mankind. All right? Thirdly, all believers receive the same seal given to the 144,000. There's no reason to believe that this is a special seal that's not the same seal that the New Testament talks to us about more clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1 uh, verse 13 and 14 we've already read, but in Ephesians uh, 4.30, we're almost done. Uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
2 Timothy 2.19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Which implies that everyone who names the name of the Lord is also his, bearing his seal. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. He gets Jesus's name. He gets God's name. He gets the new Jerusalem name written on his forehead. That's promised to the church of Philadelphia, to anyone who conquers and perseveres. So try telling somebody in Philadelphia that you don't have the same seal as the 144,000 who have the name of God written on their foreheads because they're going to stand up and say, absolutely not, because we were promised that. We were promised that same seal. It's a promise that's extended to all believers. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Man, I hope that includes all of us because this is talking about the end when we are in heaven, the new earth, enjoying him forever. His name is on our foreheads. So all believers are called his servants. All believers are redeemed. All believers receive the same seal. All believers are considered Israel in the New Testament. Romans 2.29 talks about uh, the true Israel. I'm just going to read a couple of these real quick to you. Just as a refresher, we've talked extensively about why I think the church and Israel are one people of God. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Talking about the inward aspects of what makes a Jew a Jew. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, Talking about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So Abraham was our father, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew. Uh, Galatians 3, 7, the last one I'll read. I've got several others here if you need additional evidence. But Galatians 3, 7, know this. Know then that as those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, you shall all the nations be blessed. But here's kind of the kicker, the last thing that I wanted to mention to you. I don't think God's done with ethnic Israel yet either. So in Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to probably go back and post our notes from Romans chapter 11 when I preach through Romans chapter by chapter. It's hard to get away from what Paul says in Romans about this future anticipation of salvation for Israel. But here's the thing, if we're talking about Israel being a literal 144,000 being saved, man, it pales in comparison to the amount of Gentiles that are in heaven in verse 8 or verse 9. You can't even count the number of Gentiles. So to try to think that Israel maintains this distinction between the church in the end times, if it does, it doesn't even compare to the Gentiles. Like it, it falls well short of the number of Gentiles that are there in the end if we want to hold to a strict number of Israelites being saved. I do think that God brings ethnic Israel back into this. I do think that God is going to save ethnic Israel more and more as it gets closer to him coming back. Is it literally 144,000? I don't think so. I don't think that number is significant or special. I think it just means a complete, perfect, 
large number, the number that's supposed to be sealed will be sealed in conjunction with all the Gentiles as well being sealed. All right? The main point, I think, of this is that God seals believers, enabling them to respond in faith to the trials they face so that trials become instruments that strengthen rather than weaken faith so they persevere in the midst of deception. This is the main point. God seals believers, Jews and Gentiles. And by sealing them with the Holy Spirit, it enables them to respond in faith so that when trials come, it strengthens us rather than weakens us so that we persevere when deception comes. That's what the sealing part means. God saves us and he keeps us saved. And he does everything necessary to make sure that happens. He's going to bring his judgment upon the earth, but he's going to intentionally seal all those that belong to him, ensuring that we persevere and are spared from his coming wrath. God seals believers, enabling them to respond in faith to the trials they face, so that trials become instruments that strengthen rather than weaken faith, so they persevere in the midst of deception. All right, which leaves us with application question. What am I currently doing to participate in making the seal effective in my life? Because here's the thing. I don't think we just get to sit back and stay sealed without an active participation in that. Not that God needs us, but God calls us to participate in the sealing process in so much that The Holy Spirit's purpose is to draw to memory things that Jesus has told us. Well, it becomes my responsibility then to feed my mind with things that Jesus has told me so the Holy Spirit can prompt me of those things in times of need, right? That that God is the one who empowers me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, but I have a responsibility to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, right? So the Holy Spirit empowers me to persevere, But I am called to not grieve the Holy Spirit, but to walk in the Spirit, enabling that sealing to be effective in my life. And it's guaranteed to happen. Okay, so this is where thinking in terms of what is a Christian supposed to do when we think in terms of reading the Bible, memorizing Scripture, going to church. Those are things that we participate in because the Holy Spirit uses those things as an act of sealing us until the day of redemption. Right? God has gifted us with the privilege of being in fellowship with other believers through a local church to enable us to stay faithful to him so that a, a spirit of unbelief doesn't spring up in us, so that sin doesn't creep inside of us and draw us away from the faith. We don't get drawn away from the faith. We don't get deceived by false teachers. If it were possible, we would, but it's not possible because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed to the day of redemption. But the Holy Spirit uses our participation, uses the local church to ensure that we are sealed to the day of redemption. Okay, so we have a responsibility to participate in that, which leads us to our family worship questions. How do we participate with the Holy Spirit in our sealing? How does the local church participate in our sealing? This is a great way for us as parents, especially with kids, to think through teaching them the whys behind a lot of the things that we do. We don't just teach them that Christians do these things without telling them why we do these things. Why do we go to church every Sunday? Why do we prioritize small groups? Why does dad leave for a time each month to go spend time with his accountability group? Why does mom leave to go spend time with her accountability group? Why do do we gather on a Wednesday night for small groups? 
right? It's the why behind this, because this is part of the sealing process. It's the Holy Spirit working out our salvation. It's sanctification taking place so that when Jesus comes back, we're not in the group that's hiding in the rock saying, kill me, kill me. I don't want to see the lamb. We're running to the lamb, right? We've been sealed for that day, and it's a glorious day for us, because when the wrath comes, we're spared from it, okay? So this is a great opportunity for us to talk in discussion of why we do some of these things and how that's part of our sealing that God has gifted to us. And again, I don't want to ever make you think that, that we're co, co-doing this together with God as though God needs us or that we are um, equally responsible for this, right? God does all of it. God does all of the, the work in us, but he's called us to participate in that. It's our responsibility to make sure that we're doing that so that the ceiling is really being effective in our life like it's supposed to be. I'm going to post an article today from the Gospel Coalition. It's like six or seven reasons why um, they believe, or that individual who wrote that article believes 144,000 is the church and not individual Israelites. So I'll post that for you. This is one of those times where we don't have time to do everything on a Sunday morning. Here's some extra stuff you can look at if you're interested outside of a Sunday morning. So I'll post that today for those that would like to read through that. And I'll also try to go back and post our Romans 11 notes regarding ethnic Israel and kind of my views on why God's not done with them yet. All right, let's pray together. God, we do praise you and thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this, this brief interlude in the midst of you presenting judgment that's coming, God. We're thankful that you step back and give a glorious picture of how your people are thriving during this time. Not surviving, not limping, not struggling, but thriving during this time. Father, we're thankful that through the Holy Spirit and that sealing, that sanctification that's occurring in us, that we can thrive in the midst of suffering, that we can thrive in the midst of persecution, that we can, we can be worshiping you if it ever comes to that day where we are being killed for our faith, that in the midst of being killed for our faith, we can be worshiping you, thriving in the midst of that. God, I pray that our time in Revelation would equip us to be the type of conquerors that you desire for us to be. And Father, we're so thankful that you have sealed us in such a way that we are protected spiritually from walking away from the faith. But God, help us to see that for that to be true of us and for us to really be truly sealed believers, then we do these things as a participation. Because if we're not doing them to participate, then we're probably not really saved. And so God, help us to step back and to, to see our call to participate in some of these things as an act within this sealing process. God, we're thankful that you work hard to make sure that we are guarded and protected from your coming wrath. We're thankful that in your grace and mercy, you withhold those things, that these angels are holding these things back until all believers are sealed. We're thankful for that, for that delay. God, help us to be urgent in the midst of that delay, to call others to you during that, that time. Father, I pray that you would continue to challenge us and encourage us as we leave today. pray that these things that we've talked about would stay with us and stay upon our minds and our hearts, and that they would carry us through until next week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.